Let's pray for the preached word. Our Holy Father and our God, we ask that you would cause us to honor your Sabbath day this morning by turning our hearts and our minds away from our many distractions and to the preached word. We ask that you would be with our pastor as he seeks to speak boldly and divide the word rightly, that he would take comfort in the promise that comes with your command to preach, that it would not fall on deaf ears, that it will indeed bring fruit, and it will not, it will not return void. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Turn with me, please, to Mark's Gospel once again. I'm going to read in a few moments, beginning in Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 23. I'm going to go ahead and read ahead to chapter 5, or chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 5. We have two vignettes, two scenes, two accounts back to back of the Lord confronting his adversaries over the issue of the Sabbath. They're two different scenes, and we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us precisely when they occur. It could be on the same day. It could be multiple Sabbaths apart. But Mark's concern is not necessarily a strict chronological account, but his chief concern, as we recall, is to present to us Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And here in Mark chapter 2, With respect to the Sabbath, Jesus makes a statement that would have been earth-shattering to the rulers of the Jews and to any who rejected him as Messiah. And it's the statement where he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. See, every Jew, every Jew would have known that it was God who created the Sabbath in the garden and gave it to Adam, in fact, gave it to all mankind. And then, of course... Mark and Matthew both record in their uh, respective Gospels that Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And that would have been a, a declaration of divine authority. Nothing less than divine authority for him to say, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Because the Jews would have granted that through Moses, God gave the Sabbath command at Sinai, but it was actually God himself who gave that command. It was written with his own finger on a tablet of stone. And even before that, God made the Sabbath as part of creation. So every Jew would have known that. And so for, it, was, it was really a, a statement that sometimes we read over and don't realize how big of a bomb he drops here. And so what my, one of my goals today is to help us understand what Jesus is saying with respect to this Sabbath. The title of the sermon is The Sabbath Made for Man. Because the Pharisees had inverted the whole operation. They had had messed up the whole intent of the Sabbath. And it's hard for us, I think, to understand this because for the Jew, everything revolved around the Sabbath. Their their entire lives did. Their, Their schedule, their calendar, their weekly routine, their family life, everything revolved around the Sabbath day. You're either going into the Sabbath or you're coming out of the Sabbath. The whole thing, the whole rhythm of their personal, their communal lives uh, revolved around this, and it had become to a point where it was an excessive burden. 
they were missing the blessing that God intended, and it became a heavy burden to the people. And, and complete with secret police to alert authorities when someone was breaking the Sabbath or breaking what they called the ordinances of the Sabbath. It was no longer a blessing at all. And the gospel writers, all of them, demonstrate from the words and from the actions of Jesus a radically different view of the Sabbath. Not a doing away with it, but a restoration of it. Now, in our present evangelical culture, again, this is particularly hard for us to recognize. If we went back 100 years, or 200 years, or certainly 300 years, we would have a different view of this. We would have a different understanding, even within our culture, of the Sabbath day. Some of you are old enough to remember the Texas Blue Laws. You remember those? See, and and even in our evangelical culture, we've lost the idea of a Sabbath, a day that's distinct from all the others. I mean, perhaps if you're religious, you'll go to church on a Sunday morning, but then the rest of the day is yours to do with as you please. You go and you check your box. I went to worship. I did, I did the thing there, the religious ordinance, and then the rest of the day belongs to me. And it's not much, there's nothing distinct about this day. In fact, even among conservative evangelical cultures or churches, I would guess there's not one in a hundred, maybe one in 500, that teaches that the fourth commandment is of abiding duty and obligation and law and blessing to God's people. I don't know the ratio, but it's, it's not many. It's a very small minority. That wasn't always true. In fact, that's a relatively novel idea. In fact, almost all churches in our day teach that the Sabbath is not binding upon men, especially Christians as a law to obey. But is that true? Is that accurate? From the scriptures, is that that accurate? And again, it was not that long ago that even our civil laws maintained some echoes of Sabbath observance. I remember as a kid being confused by this. Uh, We were not necessarily churchgoers or Christian family, but I would go with my dad maybe to the hardware store on a Sunday. It didn't make sense to me that I could buy a screwdriver but not screws. I, I could buy lumber. I could buy a hammer but I couldn't buy nails. And and the the laws didn't make a whole lot of sense, admittedly, but it was not religious devotion or or zeal for public worship which kept those laws on the books. Uh, It was actually retailers who didn't want the added expense and overhead. It had nothing to do with zeal for God. In fact, it was interesting. I ran across this this week. This is an archived article from Texas Monthly from 1984. This is significant because it was in 1985 that the bulk of the blue laws in Texas were repealed. Uh, prior to that, you, you could buy, for example, you could buy paper plates but not china plates. You could buy wallpaper but not flooring. So it didn't make a whole lot of sense until you actually look at the political process behind it. And this is an insight from Texas Monthly. The retailers asserted that in states that had repealed blue laws, Sunday selling had increased overhead by as much as 10%, with no commensurate increase in sales. The merchants figured that strict enforcement of the law might diminish competitive selling on Sunday, particularly from national big-volume giants. It is mainly the handiwork of the 5,000-member Texas Retailers Association, which squired the measure through the legislature and now spends 20% of its lobbying time each session, making sure the law is not repealed. 
all you have to do to see whose interests are at stake is to peruse the list of items in the statute. They are invariably things sold by retailers who don't want to open on Sunday. In other words, a local department store doesn't really care how much toothpaste Tom Thumb sells on Sunday, but it does care if it's selling dinner plates and men's shirts. So you see, even our own civil laws began to have much in common with the Pharisaical tradition. None of it really made a lot of sense. And none of it had to do with religious zeal or true worship of God. In the two events that we're going to read about here in a few moments, the issue of the Sabbath takes center stage. And so we have to ask, is Jesus tearing down the old commandment? Is he doing away with the fourth commandment entirely? In fact, this was coincidentally, I'm not smart enough to plan this ahead of time, our catechism this morning was on the fourth commandment. And, and we, we, we just recited together what the fourth commandment requires. But it's primarily a devotion to God. Is Jesus commanding that that old fourth commandment doesn't apply anymore? Is he giving new law here regarding the Sabbath? Is he changing the Sabbath institution? And some are tempted to think that he's throwing the whole thing out because of what he had just said, we saw this last week, about new wineskins and unshrunk cloth. Short answer is no. Not as it was originally created by God. Not one jot or tittle of his law is going to pass away. What do we do with all of this? I'm going to argue this week and next that what Jesus is doing is leading a restoration project. It's a, it's a kind of a remodeling project in which he, he strips away everything that had been added on and restores the original beauty of the Sabbath. When we bought our first home, it was, it was an older home built in 1941. And sometime during the 60s, wall-to-wall carpet was the thing. And somebody had put wall-to-wall carpeting in all the the rooms. Some of the rooms had horsehair padding that was glued down. Uh, We also, in the the main room of the house, it had a synthetic kind of a foam pad under the carpet that because it had a four-furnace, it all had melted. But we, in the process of looking at the house before we bought it, we had hints that it might be hardwood floors underneath there because we could peel up a little bit in the closet. And then... At closing, the daughter of the estate from whom we bought it gave us the original blueprints. And reading the original blueprints, the builder had specced number one grade red oak flooring. Now, number one grade in 1940 was a little different than it is now. It was beautiful, gorgeous floor. So we set about the work, the lot of hard work, of pulling up and hand scraping with a two-inch scraper the entire house to get all the old glue and nails and staples. But what we did, was seeking to recover the simple, elegant, beautiful, functional floors that the original builder intended. And when we got through, the whole house was just transformed. Well, the scriptures tell us that those of us who have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ are being built together into a house. We're being built in together for a dwelling place for God. And this house is not built with human hands. It's a glorious house. It's precious to its master and Lord. It's being built by the Holy Spirit as a dwelling place for the triune God. And in order to prepare the house properly, the Sabbath has to be recovered. And all the old junk, all the stuff that's been added on, has to be stripped away so that we might recover the original beauty and glory the builder designed. 
God created the Sabbath as an abiding gift to mankind, and especially to his people, providing both the promise and the opportunity to draw near to him. The Lord is both the creator and the benefactor of the Sabbath, commanding all men to obey the command for his glory and for their own good. Now that's a lengthy introduction, isn't it? But I want to set these things before you, before I read the text. We have those in mind. What Jesus is doing here is recovering. He's wanting to strip away all the things that men had added on to this so that we could recover what was beautiful and glorious, what God intended, what the builder intended for this day. So now read with me as I open God's word before you beginning in verse 23 of Mark chapter 2, and I'm going to read down to verse 5, or I'm sorry, verse 6 of Mark chapter 3. This is the word of God. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read... What David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I want to note two things about the text, two things that we're going to learn from. My focus today will be on that first vignette the the disciples walking through the grain field. Number one, the abiding validity of the Sabbath. Let's meditate upon the the, the abiding validity of the Sabbath. And secondly, how it is that we honor Christ's authority to rule the Sabbath. Jesus declares himself Lord of the Sabbath. How do we honor him as Lord of the Sabbath? So those are our two headings this morning. The abiding validity of the Sabbath and honoring Christ's authority to rule the Sabbath. You want just a shorter outline, validity and authority, your two key words. Let's think first of all about the abiding validity. We, we see the, the abiding validity here in the fact that, that the Sabbath seems to be the only point of agreement between Jesus and the Pharisees, the, the existence of the Sabbath. Jesus does not correct them at all about the fact that the Sabbath ought to be observed. So Jesus assumes an abiding Sabbath, and he often teaches on the subject. So why do this 
if he were about to abolish the command entirely. If upon his death and resurrection, the Sabbath were going away, why doesn't Jesus say that? Why does, why does he continue to urge for Sabbath keeping? But secondly, there's a hint here in the text, particularly in verse 27, when Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. This is a reference to creation, not Sinai. This is a reference to the fact that God made the Sabbath. He created it as a good thing for all mankind, not just his covenant people. In fact, it's good for the whole of creation. Not only Jews or not only Christians. So when Jesus says it's made, it's a reference to creation, not Sinai. He had no disagreement with the Pharisees on this point. This is one of the few areas where they did not disagree. The Sabbath was made. It was made by God. The Sabbath was made for the good of Adam, for the good of all mankind, not for the Jews alone. But thirdly, not once does Jesus undermine the true doctrine of the Sabbath. Not once. And there were multiple opportunities as we read through the Gospel accounts where he could have undermined or done away with or radically altered the doctrine of the Sabbath, but he doesn't. He, now, he regularly rebukes the Jews' extra-biblical additions to the Sabbath. That's really what's going to be at issue, and I'll explain that in a moment. But on other matters that were going to be abolished, Jesus clearly said so. So, for example, he told the Jews very plainly that the temple would be destroyed. You go to Mark 13, for example, and he says, not one stone will be left upon another. Not one. He said, in fact, the whole temple is going to be raised again in three days, and that that blew their minds because they could not understand that he was the true temple. But he told them ahead of time, the entire sacrificial system that goes along with the temple is going away. All of the ceremonies and the judicial laws of Israel are going to be abrogated. But the moral law, is never done away with. And the Sabbath, again, is part of the creation ordinance. It is not added on merely at Sinai. See, what's happening here is an issue of adding to. Look back at verse 24 or 23. On this Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are walking along. And, and it was customary as you walked along. It was perfectly lawful even if it wasn't your own field, to, to grab a handful of grain. That was a, a, a common provision for all people. And they were grabbing a handful of grain, grinding it in their hands, and then eating the kernels of wheat. Nothing wrong with that. The Pharisees had decided, though, that to do such a thing was the same or is the equivalent to a full-scale harvest. So certainly it would have been unlawful on the Sabbath to go out and hire a crew to bring scythe to your grain and to harvest the whole thing. No, that could wait until the following day. But it was never unlawful to simply grab for your own needs. It wasn't work to grind grain in your hand and to eat a little of it. See, they had added to what God required. And Jesus takes issue with that. What we notice here is that Jesus frequently himself... I should say, always himself observes the Sabbath. We find in verse 1 of chapter 3, for example, again, he entered the synagogue. Jesus led his disciples every single Sabbath to be about his father's 
business to be gathering with his people, to be instructing them, teaching them, worshiping with them. And so his regular, his correct observance of the Sabbath testifies to to the Sabbath's abiding validity. We always find him at the synagogue. We always find him ministering the word of God. We always find him teaching the people. We always find him seeking the welfare of his people on the Sabbath day. See, God created the Sabbath as an, uh, an abiding gift, an ongoing gift to mankind. Providing both the promise and the opportunity to draw near to him. So saints, how do you approach the Lord's day, the, the, the Christian Sabbath? Do you approach it in this way? Do you see it as both an abiding duty and an enduring privilege? Or do you only see one or the other? Do you only see the, the, the duty? This is a burden. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heavy weight that God has put upon us to give one whole day every week to him. Or do you think more of only the privilege? I get to come, I get to be with God's people, I get the fellowship, I get those things that I enjoy, but it's, there's no duty in it. If I don't want to do it or if something else comes up, I have no obligation. It's just a blessing to me that I'm free to take advantage of or not. So the question is not a matter of whether Jesus is going to abolish the fourth commandment. At every single opportunity, Jesus makes it plain that's not the case. There are many opportunities in which he could have done so, but every single time he affirms the ongoing validity of the Sabbath day. But, and this is a significant but, but he always takes issue with the manner in which the Pharisees sought to hold the people under a heavy burden that they had added to the ordinance. It was never there. He always takes issue with the way in which the Jewish leaders had added to God's word and converted this commandment from a blessing to a burden. They had turned a blessing into burden. They had turned a gift into a grift in some ways. So what's the answer? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is this. Jesus asserts himself as the Son of Man, as the, as the Son of God, he asserts himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. We see that in verse 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, every Jew knew that God gave the Sabbath at creation in Sinai. Every Jew would have known that. So anyone asserting that he was the Lord of the Sabbath was making a claim of divine authority. This is a statement that runs parallel to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And multiple occasions on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So for example, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who has anger in his heart against his brother has violated the command. So in other words, he looked at the sixth commandment and says, you've heard this very narrow view that unless you've actually lifted your hand and taken another's life, you you bear no guilt. But Jesus said, no, no, no. The commandment has always had a more comprehensive scope. And I alone am the proper interpreter of that. I alone, not not your understanding, not the, the doctrines and commandments of men, but I alone am the greater Moses, the true Moses, who can declare to you the full intent of the command. 
He said right after that, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man has looked with lust at a woman in his heart, he's violated the commandment. He's saying it's not that you've avoided the actual physical act, but that you're guilty if your heart is oriented to sexual immorality. And so Jesus is saying this, a very similar thing here. He said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I alone have the authority to change this. The Pharisees do not. And the implication is, I don't and you don't. We don't have the authority either to add to or take away from the command of God. Therefore, Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, did he become Lord of the Sabbath, announce himself as Lord of the Sabbath so that he can abolish it? That doesn't even make any sense. The plain reading of Scripture testifies that the Sabbath remains, even now, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But it's not under, here's the critical part, it's not under the Lordship of the Pharisees, it's not under the Lordship of me and you. It's under the Lordship of Christ. Now, Matthew records some really key words. Matthew, if you look in in chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, there's a parallel account of these these two stories. The, The the disciples plucking grain and healing of the man with the withered hand. Matthew records the same events with a little bit more detail, but immediately before that, very end of chapter 11, Matthew records these words from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, two things are of note in that quote. Number one, Jesus is referencing Jeremiah chapter 6. In that statement, I will give you rest for your souls. And Jeremiah 6 says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So Jesus is specifically quoting and referencing and and causing his people to look backward to the promise of the prophets. That in him and him alone would they find rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest is not found in the Pharisaical traditions. That rest is not found in the burdens added to the law. The rest is found in me. Now, the other significant thing about the quote from Jesus is is where Matthew places it immediately prior to this instruction on the Sabbath. You want to know what rest looks like? You want to know what it looks like to walk in the ancient paths and see where the good way is? It's in a restoration. It's in a reclamation of the Sabbath as God had given it to his people. Honoring the Sabbath means honoring the Lord of the Sabbath. It means resting in him who is the good way. He alone can provide rest to your soul. Now, there's, there's a couple of immediate implications from this. Think this through. If Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, then here are two irrefutable implications of this. You cannot honor the Sabbath without honoring Christ. Now, this one should be straightforward enough, right? The Pharisees were not honoring the Sabbath because they weren't honoring the Lord of the Sabbath. They were refuting him. So, 
any Sabbath observance that is mere ritualism or mere formalism or mere religiosity of some kind and not rooted and grounded in the person and work of Christ is not true Sabbath observance, is it? One cannot honor the Sabbath day and dishonor the Lord of the Sabbath. But there's an equal corollary that maybe is the flip side of the same coin. You cannot honor Christ without honoring the Sabbath day. No one can say, I love Christ, I honor Christ, but I don't honor the day. Because he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the focal point. He's the whole point of it. So no matter what you or I do or don't do, if we miss Jesus, there's no Sabbath. There's no rest. There's no blessing from God. But also, no amount of saying that we love the Lord, that we want to seek His face, that we want to grow in Him, can be complete if we dishonor the day that He's appointed for us. If we dishonor the command that He's given to us. We need to have an idea of what's underneath all the junk that Jesus is seeking to strip away. We need to have an idea of, of what is the intent of the command. And so just as the blueprints of our the old house that we originally bought had for us some clue that there was something better, something more beautiful underneath and gave us the motivation to seek to strip away all the, the melted pad and glue and, and, and spend the hours and hours and hours on our hands and knees to get rid of all that stuff. We, it was a motivation for that. Because we become convinced that something very beautiful was underneath it. If we could strip away all the junk. Saints, may it be true as we think about the Sabbath day. You may have, in your own mind, some junk that needs to be stripped away. And that junk could be on either end of a spectrum. On the one hand, it could be the idea, the junk idea that the Sabbath isn't binding. There's no command here. That it's good to come and worship God, it's good to gather with the people, but there's no fourth commandment. That's all gone away with. Well, that's not a biblical idea. But the other end of it, the junk that may need to be stripped away is all these, these this piles of do's and don'ts that God didn't give. A legalistic structure. Because we've already established that all of us have at least a little Pharisee in us, don't we? Some more than others, but we all have at least a little Pharisee in us. There's something about the human nature that wants to default to, to a list of rules. Tell me what to do, or tell me what not to do, and give me the illusion that I can keep something and justify myself in that way. We need to understand the real beauty and the glory of the Sabbath hidden beneath all the junk. It's not only the ancient Jews who got this wrong. We as Christians can get it just as wrong and lay up burdens for one another that we neither, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. We have not the option, we have not the liberty of rejecting the fourth commandment or ignoring it or seeking to refute it. Nor do we have the option or the liberty to add rules and regulations and precepts on top of the plain teaching that God has given to us. Now, Jesus gives us very helpful instruction, I think, in these, these, these two stories. The first one, the, the, the instruction or the instruction that he gives from the Word of God Responding to the accusation that the Pharisees make. Look at verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, 
Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That's the charge. The disciples are grabbing heads of wheat or grain as they walk through the field. They're apparently rubbing it in their hands. And as they're walking along, they eat it. Now, Matthew adds, I think, another helpful detail. He says, and they were hungry. This this was a, a bona fide physical need, but yet they accuse Jesus and his disciples of doing something which is not lawful to do. Now, Jesus' answer is curious. And he, you can almost hear in his answer a certain tone of voice. And it's not a a tone of voice that communicates respect and admiration for the Pharisees, is it? One of his favorite expressions, have you not read? I mean, these were men who were supposed to know the law inside and out. These were the teachers of Israel. These were the ones who, who boasted about how well they knew the law and how perfectly they kept it. And Jesus looked at them, maybe you missed this part in your studies. Maybe, that it, maybe you were gone that day when the rabbi taught about this. Remember David in that whole scene with Abiathar? Now, you may have to reacquaint yourself in the Old Testament narratives. It was a time when David has leading a band of men. They're coming back from battle, and they're hungry. They haven't eaten in days. They're weak. They're weary. And David goes in and takes what was called the bread of the presence, or it's also known as the showbread. This was part of the ceremonial law. There was bread that was set out before the Lord, and at the end of every day, there was one and only one person permitted to eat that. It was the priest. No one else was permitted to eat it. Now, David was king, but he was not priest. Remember, Saul got into a lot of trouble from the Lord by trying to do both roles, by, by daring to act as a priest rather than as king. But why was it? Jesus is... is Bringing this before the Pharisees, it says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any of the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, the implication here is he looks at these men and said, Maybe you haven't read this part, but are you saying that David was guilty of breaking the law? Now, if they were honest, they would have answered, probably sheepishly, mm, no. Kind of like you, you, you ask your kids those questions all the time, you, don't, you get the no with the question mark at the end? Uh, no. No, David was not guilty. Why was David not guilty? Because even Jesus said it was not lawful for him to eat it. What made the difference? Because David's men were hungry. And David had a duty as their leader to obey the sixth commandment. He had the duty to obey the moral law. Now, the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. What does that have to do with feeding someone? The sixth commandment also requires affirmatively that you protect life, that you protect the bodies of men and women, that you provide for their material welfare if you are able. David would have been in greater peril before the Lord if he had ignored the true physical needs of his men with the idea that, well, we have to honor this ceremony. And there's a clear principle that Jesus teaches here. Observance of the moral law supersedes ceremonial ordinances. 
Now, in Matthew's gospel, he adds, again, Matthew's gospel is slightly longer. That's the pattern we, we ordinarily see. But Matthew adds this statement to Jesus' words. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. What's he saying? The welfare of human beings exceeds your zeal to obey every jot and tittle of the ceremony. It's an important principle. See, when Jesus says the Sabbath is, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, what he's teaching is, if it causes you to harm a human being or causes you to fail to love a human being, in your zeal to obey a ceremonial ordinance, you don't understand the ceremonial ordinance correctly. The purpose of the ceremonial ordinance was to point the people to Christ. Not to give them liberty to add burdens that would harm their fellow man. The Sabbath was made for man. It was made for his good. So if we are interpreting or applying the Sabbath doctrine in such a way that it harms man or adds unnecessary or unscriptural burdens upon him, we're not doing it right. In fact, there's an argument even from the light of nature on this because, again, the Sabbath was a creation ordinance. It's good for all of men. There's a a Presbyterian pastor from the 19th century. His name was Melanchthon Jacobus. Listen to what he says, that the Sabbath was made for man is plain from the facts in all the world. Wherever it's kept holy according to the commandment of God, it blesses society. With the knowledge of God's truth, with peace and order and happiness, and and promotes man's highest temporal welfare. This can be abundantly shown in all the world's history. And this divine institution can always be vindicated and pleaded for onto this ground of unity and expediency. It is found that even the beast is more serviceable to man for the rest that this day affords. Those who have tried to gain more by working on this day have generally lost more than they have gained. And a people without the Sabbath must soon come to be heathens. Well, he's arguing about a whole culture, isn't he? You know, I saw this in vivid ter- in vivid ways uh, when I worked for a packaging company, and we had employees inside of a large manufacturing plant here in Houston, and it was a Chinese-owned company, the contract manufacturer, and they worked two shifts seven days a week. And their, their productivity was pretty flat, but every now and then, it would happen because they ran this whole just-in-time inventory thing and the whole Kanban model, and some of you are familiar with that. And things inevitably, even long before COVID, the supply chain sometimes just didn't work. And so motherboards would not come in, or some memory module that they needed would not come in. And so they would have to notify their staff on Saturday, we don't have enough parts to build on Sunday. So we're taking the time off. And what happened every single time? Every single time. The next week was record productivity. Every single time. And they couldn't get it. They would not or would admit it. The Chinese mindset was you keep marching on, you keep pressing on. But in God's providence, when parts wouldn't arrive, and sometimes they were forced to take a day off, or even just one shift, and they would call them in on a Sunday night, their productivity the next week would soar. 
It's it's universal reality. See, God, part of the Sabbath promise to Adam, I'm going to give you seven days worth of pro- productivity in only six days. If you will devote yourself to my worship, you have my permission. God commanded Adam to work, to tend the garden, to keep it. Adam, you can do that in six, and you have my permission not to work on that seventh day, to devote that day to me, and I will meet all of your needs. Of course, he vividly illustrated that to his people at one point, right? When the manna came from heaven, he told them, every day, you go out and get one day supply. Remember when the people said, I'm going to get two or three days supply just in case it doesn't rain manna tomorrow? And what happened? It rotted in the jar. But the day before the Sabbath, they were to get two-day supply. But only this one, only on this time, get two-day supply. And what happened? It didn't rot. God provided for them six days productivity, or seven days of productivity in six. But not only is the Sabbath good for all mankind, but we find that Sabbath is of particular good to God's covenant people. He's promised good generally to all mankind as a creation ordinance, but he's given a particular promise to his people. The Sabbath is not bondage, but liberty to set aside our ordinary responsibilities, our ordinary labors, so that we can devote ourselves to our God. I mean, have you ever thought this? In in our increasingly hectic lives, our increasingly hectic schedules, there's just far too little time for the things of God, isn't there? Have you ever had this thought? I wish I had more time for dedicated Bible study. I wish I had more time for theological study. I wish I had more time to, to, to teach my, my wife and children these things that I've been learning about. I wish I had more time to just sit and meditate upon the things of God. Times of, of, of quiet reflection and thoughtful care. Have you ever lamented that there was just not enough time for fellowship because of, of just the hustle and bustle of our lives? Have you ever lamented the fact that just there wasn't enough occasions to visit the sick? Saints, there is. We have one full day in seven. But the Lord has said, here, you have my permission to set aside those lawful engagements, those, your, your worldly employment, set aside your ledger, set aside your inventory, set aside your sales calls, set aside your manufacturing, set aside all of that for me on this day. And there's plenty of time. Many of you have seen this in, in, in your personal finances, the first, especially as a young Christian, you start getting their first paycheck and you think, ooh, 10% is a lot. I don't know that I can live on 90. And you find that not only can, can you, but you prosper in that. And there's a similar mindset. We think, I can't live on six days. I've got to have the full seven in order to get everything done. This is a matter of faith, brothers and sisters, isn't it? And we believe that God will provide for us. That our jar will be double full in order to carry us through. In fact, in Hebrews 10, the apostle there says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Are we willing to exhort one another in these things and encourage one another? Brother, I know you're busy. Sister, I know there's a lot going on. But you will give yourself to the Lord's day 
He is faithful. He will provide. Will we exhort one another in these ways? Kind of lost count here. I had bullet points. I think this is the fourth one on terms of how do we honor? Principles of honoring the Sabbath. One, of course, is recognize its continuing validity. Two is recognize Sabbath is good for all mankind. Three is the Sabbath is of particular good to the Christian. And fourth, and I'll, I'll spend more, on, more time on this next week, is that the works of mercy and necessity are obviously and clearly permitted. Like this was the point of contention we'll see next week. Jesus asked that, that really probing question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or to kill? So, we think about many who are necessary to work on such a day. Firefighters and police officers and nurses and doctors and healthcare workers. Mothers. Pastors. Fathers. There are plenty who are necessary. What mom would say to her toddler, well, that diaper's not going to get changed till tomorrow. Because I can't work today. Or I can't feed you today. You'll have to wait till tomorrow. Well, of course not. That's a, that's a work of necessity and a work of mercy. Jesus, in another place, points out that if the, to the Pharisees, if, you're, if, you're, if what you're saying is true, then even the priests are guilty of violating the Sabbath because they work every Sabbath. I mean, have you ever butchered an animal? It's a lot of work. And so to sacrifice a sheep or a goat or a bull, it's a lot of work. And it took place on the Sabbath day. It's a work of necessity. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember his answer? Greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. There's a second one that's like unto the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if in our Sabbath observance we think, or the way that we think or the way that we practice it, would undermine what Jesus says, this is the foundation on which all the law and the prophets rests. Love of the Lord your God and the love of your neighbor. You have to tell your neighbor, sorry, I see that you have a real need but I can't help you today because of my religious zeal. Maybe we're not holding the commandment rightly in our minds or in our practice. Fifthly, lastly, how do we honor the Sabbath? The right understanding of the law depends upon the instruction of Jesus and his apostles, not the doctrines and commandments of men. If we want to understand the sixth commandment, Correctly, where do we go? To Jesus' own words, that it is not limited to merely the physical taking of a human life. If we want to understand the seventh commandment, it is not merely the physical outward act of adultery, but the inner lusts of a man or a woman's heart. If we want to understand the fourth commandment correctly, where do we go? Not the doctrines and commandments of men but to the word of Christ, 
to his words, to his example, to apostolic instruction. For example, one of the clear implications of Jesus teaching about the Sabbath is that the moral law transcends the ceremonial law. So David's commitment to seeing after the physical needs of his men, including their physical hunger, trumped the ceremonial law in that instance. And Jesus, by giving this example, says David was guiltless. He was not guilty for eating which would have been otherwise unlawful. If he'd just gone in as his own private indulgence, or because he had a banquet and he wanted to show off as king, and I want to bring in the, the bread of the, of the, show, the show bread, the bread of the presence, well, he would have been guilty. But to bring this to his men, to care for their bodies, is perfectly lawful. See, we're all prone to errors on the Sabbath command, aren't we? But sometimes we're prone maybe to opposite errors. We, we may struggle in different ways, just as we would with the Sixth Commandment. You may struggle in different ways than I do. The Seventh Commandment, you may struggle in different ways than I do. The Eighth Commandment, and on and on and on. The same is true with the Fourth. Can you see yourself in some of these common but opposite errors? For example... Are you more likely to give too little attention to the fourth commandment, too little attention to the Sabbath? Are you more likely to neglect your duty to God and at the same time miss the benefits of drawing near to him in worship and being among the assembled group of his people on the Lord's day? Are you more likely to err on, on that side? Or are you, on the other hand, more likely to overemphasize duty and miss the blessing of simply resting in God's goodness? Are you more likely to, to want to add, either for yourself or others, commands and ordinances and statutes and rules? Or are you more likely to neglect the duty altogether? Are you more likely to neglect the matters of mercy and simple delight in God? Or are you more likely to miss the duty of God giving a clear command to his people? to honor this day, to sanctify this day? Are the things regarding the Sabbath about which you need the grace of repentance, the grace of renewed faith? Now, I urge you to do so on the authority of God's word. May the Lord be gracious to all of us in this matter. May the Spirit of God apply the sweet power of the gospel to transform our thinking, to renew and restore our actions and affections regarding this holy day. For the praise of, of God's glory in his name, but also for our good. Remember, for the Christian, there is a particular promise of blessing as we gather. Saints, God created the Sabbath as an abiding gift to mankind. God hasn't done away with that. He's provided both the promise and the opportunity to draw near to him. The Lord is both the creator and the benefactor of the Sabbath, commanding all men to obey the command for their own good. And what I hope to expound next week is really looking more at the heart of the Sabbath. How do, how do we avoid? Because there, there is a temptation, always there, to revert to rules and regulations. And you see that if you read some of the Puritans, even in their zeal to recover and affirm the true Sabbath day, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's day, some of them erred on that side and added stipulations and statutes. Will you seek the Lord's help 
to see this. Number one, to see it as an abiding command, and then the grace of God to obey it. Not out of a slavish fear, but out of a true faith that says, with open hands, I'm going to receive the blessing of my God as I obey him in this. Will you seek the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to sanctify the Sabbath day as holy in your heart, in your mind, and in your life? And for the Lord's sake, for your neighbor's benefit, and for your own eternal good, will you seek his face on this? Let's pray together. O Lord and God, we are so thankful that you, you have provided for us, for both our bodies and our souls, that you've given to us this blessed day, not only for physical rest, which surely we need, but even more, we need the rest that can only come by the power of your Spirit through the merits of our risen and exalted Christ. We pray that you will help us to be conformed more and more to the image of our Savior, to be governed by your word alone, to have our conscience submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, delighting in the liberty that we now have as redeemed men and women to obey your just and good and holy law. We confess that apart from Christ, apart from your indwelling spirit, we don't have the ability to obey your law. We don't have the ability to do that which is holy and righteous before you. But in Christ, we have his full righteousness imputed to us. We also have the grace and power and strength which your spirit supplies for us to grow, to be sanctified in our obedience to you in all things. We ask that you will help us to live this out before you and before our brothers and sisters. For Christ's sake, we ask this.